Hello, everybody. Chris Martinson here. And today we're going to be talking about finance and economics as part of Finance U. Remember, anything that you see in this video and all resources available at our websites or affiliated websites are not intended as or construed as financial advice. This is for educational purposes. Remember, if you have a financial decision, please consult a financial professional. We are not attorneys. We're not CPAs. We are not financial managers as well. We do our best to be accurate and everything we represent is as accurate as we know it to be. Now, let's turn to our program. Uh, we're looking now at things that I never thought I'd see again, where you see companies sporting things like price to sales that are in double digits, right? Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Financial University. Wow, things are really beginning to break in the world. As you know, if you've been watching my other content, I've been really working on something called The Great Taking, that incredible book by David Roger Webb, but I've, I've been going in deeper and deeper, and uh, very thankful to be working with Paul Kiker of Kiker Wealth Management on that. Paul, so good to have you back on the program. I want to talk about that. Anything else on your mind? Because there's a lot going on. <laughs> no, it's a it's a pleasure to be back, Chris. Good talking to you, and and um, thank you for doing the work on this great taking. This is important, and you, you are so good at breaking it down in an understandable manner. So this is going to benefit a lot of people. I, I have I have lost a few brain cells on this one um, because some things are a little bit native to my brain. Legal stuff is not. Um, I hate it when I have to read a sentence five times to try and guess what I think it means because they. They put these special words in and then they counteract them and then they refer to something else and this modifies something they just said. And it can take a little while. It's not a native language uh, for me. I understand why why lawyers have a little special thing all carved out because they use really weird ways of thinking and talking. <laughs> that, that are I, I, I assume at one point they started out with like, these should add greater clarity. Mm -mm. This is really unclear language, <clears throat> which I think be has become the point. <laughs> that's right. That's uh, that's one thing I think the legal profession does very well is make it as, as hard to understand as possible. So I will say just on my side and the research that we've been trying to do, there's twice in the uh, since I left college or graduated college that I've had to pull a dictionary off the shelf and dig in. That was when I started learning blockchain years ago, Bitcoin and Ethereum and everything that goes with that. And mm -hmm. I've I have pulled the dictionary out several times to try to uh, understand the terms around direct registration, everything that goes on, and uh, what I'm trying to learn as well. Well, what I like is that is that you know you you take it seriously. There's something here, right? Um, yeah. And and neither of us have great like what we consider to be ironclad answers yet, but but there are answers out there. There are responses. I know. You, um, for people watching this, um, you know, Paul and I have been going through and, and reading individual lines of the bankruptcy code and commercial code because it matters. Right. And, and so um, here's the thing, Paul, I've had a number of people who are supposed to be financial professionals or experts say things like, um, oh, no, that's nothing. I had a guy on Twitter say, I, I showed this to lawyers. They all laughed at it. I'm like, well, here's the thing. If it's written down and it's the law and we have case precedents. It's a thing, okay? We have both of those in this regard, right? Yes. So yeah. I don't know how we can dismiss it and say it's not really a thing or I don't think they'll do that or whatever your belief systems are. I'm just like, well, these are the words and these are the case precedents. So 
that's the world we live in. And you either can pay attention to that or not and feel free to ignore it. And I get it. And it's complicated. But uh, this is how, I, you know, I've learned in the school yeah. of life that the words matter, right? You know, when you're in a legal uh, situation, the, 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 the words are the only things that matter. So here are the words. Um, and it's kind of interesting when you see the words. It is interesting, and quite and, and, and quite frankly, it's overwhelming to an extent when you first look at it. You, you know your thought and natural human tendency to say there's no way that this is going to happen. There's no way that they're going to let this happen. But the more I've thought about this, just fighting, you know, okay, if this was so much effort, and you're proving consistently just how much effort and thought went into putting this together, it's established for a reason. And I go back to. You know, so I was thinking and just kind of praying about it, like, okay, so, so, you know, trying to ask for wisdom. The thought came into my mind, okay, 2007, prior to 2007, 2008, did you ever hear of anyone who was making payment on a loan that had it foreclosed on, right? As long as you made payments, that at least in, with the small community banks in our area, I saw several you know, grown men cry, said, but I'm making my payments and I've always made my payments. And no matter how bad the recession was in the past, I made my payments. Mm -hmm. But when you had this mark to market of loans and they had to call these loans, the rules of the game changed, right? It was in the system. So mm -hmm. this is written down too. So we have to take this seriously because you go back to 2007, 2008, just because it's not been done in the past, or you're afraid that, that the consequences to the individuals are so severe if it's written in there, you have to find a way around it and prepare for it. So we believe it's important. I don't have any answers yet, um, but uh, we continue to diligently look to see if there's some way to help protect investors and educate them. Well, it, it, there, there definitely are ways. Uh, I, I'm convinced at this point, based on what little I know. Remember, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> and consult your financial, you know, professionals and all of this. But you know, we're we're also. Um, I'm confident in my ability to read words and make sense of them over time. So, so I, this, this is all we can figure this out. But, but here's what's clear. You know, I think where some people break down as they go, they, they jump all the way to the end, right? Which is like, oh, they couldn't take everything. And I'm like, well, they're smart. Why would they do it that way? Yeah. You know, wouldn't they turn their sights on commercial real estate and then community banks, regional banks, Maybe then they would turn it into, you know, like it'll be sniped for a little while. It'll be money market funds. It'll be 401ks. Like I would never. But the point is, is that the machinery's already been there. And, and I'm this, uh, this is how I'm built, Paul. If somebody says they're going to do something and then they do it, I'm like, well, maybe that's there. Maybe they meant that, you know, so we can disagree all we want over where or how or when or if, but we can't disagree over the fact that this is how the law is currently written. Mm -hmm. And this is how it's already been exercised in set and case precedents in the law. So make of that what you will. But for the people who say, okay, you know, are there things we can do? That's where uh, very happy to be working with you because we'll, we'll figure this out. And I do believe that there are outs because here's the first rule of, of people writing laws. They always leave themselves an out. So you have to hunt for it, <laughs> but it's in there. Just look at the tax law. You know, it's like, like a politician stated, if it's written into the law, I'm going to use it. And that's my argument. Give me the out. We'll take it. So, yeah, yep. I agree. And, um, you know, and like you said, there appears to be several and, and it, it requires a little extra work on our part and, and mm -hmm. it won't be as efficient. 
but it, it, it appears that it, if these things come to fruition, there, there should be a way to do it. And if can, that's a service that we'll be willing to offer people to try to help them. Better Excellent. to be safe than sorry, right? You got to take this serious as much detail and as much effort as they put in and time to implement this. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, um, I think it's also, and this is really, I'm, it's just so unfortunate because I hate doing this, but I think it's time for people to also maybe really read carefully what their insurance policies do and do not cover. I've been seeing a lot of things sneaking in lately where now they don't cover any effects from a cyber crime. Like, and so think this one through, like the way I read this one policy, somebody sent me, I'm like, oh, any related services that might've been down. So let's say there's a cyber attack and the computer system goes down. So the 911 system doesn't work and your house burns down. That's excluded the way I read this now. Now, maybe you could fight that in court, but it, that's what's written into these policies now, mm-hmm. all kinds of exclusions. And this includes war and terrorism. And there's like a lot of things in there. Right. But. Basically, I think it used to be you bought a house policy and if something happened to it, you were covered. And now it's like, well, not that kind of water, a not wind under that circumstance. And that's a different kind of a fire. That was a, a force majeure act of God forest fire. Not those fire. Like, it's like, I don't know what they cover anymore. <laughs> you know, well, so you got to be careful. You got to be careful. And that, that actually reminds me of something, Chris, that I'll share with you. So my details are going to be off just a little bit because it was three weeks ago. My brother-in-law and I were talking about it, but somebody hacked his, his business account and stole, mm. you know, $10,000 out. It was a fraudulent event. So he goes, gets the bank to correct it. But then they notify him that if it happens again, their new policy is if the money comes out and the owner of the account doesn't catch it within 48 hours, the bank is not responsible for it. So you think about that, you've got to start paying attention to your business accounts and your checking accounts now, because if your bank that you're doing business with, and this was a large regional bank, has that same policy, then you're at risk if you're not paying attention to your checking accounts as well. So, you know, unfortunately, instead of them watching out for us, we've gotten into a situation where you know, all of the responsibility keeps falling back on the individuals and the insurance companies are more worried about profitability than they are fulfilling their responsibility to their, um, to their payees. Those of us who purchase the insurance that, you, you know, you buy, if something happens, that's what you're paying you for. We're paying you for, and st- you know, and they're spending all of their time trying to find out so that they don't have to pay us. It's, it's just not right. That's not, that's not right. That's not the way insurance should operate. No. And you know, this, this has happened to me a lot lately, um, in, in other areas where, um, you know, like we just had a solar system put up and I'm having to go back and forth with them because I raised some concerns. I'm like, I don't know if this, you should be doing it this way. Oh no, this is how we do it. And like, I was right. You mm. just want to trust that your experts who do this, this is their job that you should be able to say, fine, do this. But I learned this during, during COVID as well. Believe me, my trust got totally shattered mm-hmm. uh, because the so-called experts who are supposed to be digesting the data, understand this is their expertise. This is mm-hmm. what they do. This is their vocation and their job, right? This is the thing you should be good at and have pride in because you get great at it and you have people's lives on the line. And there were people out there who were totally willing to just fumble that ball and, and not care um, and be confidently ignorant <laughs> as they were, you know, well, I'm following CDC guidelines like, oh, OK, you know, oof, that did not work out, you know. 
Um, so, so again, this is just the age of where you have to find people you can really trust. And so I think we're in a post-trust environment and this is endemic across all these different areas of expertise. So, um, you know, my new business model is very simple. I work with people of high integrity, full stop, that's it. And, um, you know, I hold myself to the same standards that I expect of everybody else. And that's, that's it, you know, Mm -hmm. good news. There are people out there of high integrity still. So so that's the good part. There are, and, and and I will say, in in meeting the people that I've met through Peak Prosperity, there you have a lot of followers that are of high integrity. They care about this country. They're smart. They're inquisitive. And you go back to building trust. That's one of the things I always tell people in our introductory phone call. The one of the first things I say is, "Look, you can ask me anything. Okay, you're not going to hurt my feelings." If it comes to mm-hmm. mind, ask me a question because that's how we build trust, right? If you've got a question, ask it. We work our way through it. If I don't have the answer, I'll do my best to find it for you. So, um, you know, just back to conversation and and some humility and, and research and, you know, do unto others as we would want to have done unto us. I think that's th- something that people forget nowadays. Yeah, yeah. Not only forget, but it, they've sort of, turned it into do one to others before they do one to you (laughs) you're right Right. well said (laughs) you know i guess but but that's just sort of the landscape we're we're in right now um turning to things financial for a bit uh i'm starting to see you know more and more of these creaking and popping sounds uh the big things that have popped up across my radar screen of course this morning german banks uh many of them really starting to crater here because they're heavily exposed to uh, German commercial real estate, and we started to see creaking and popping across the commercial real estate space here in the U.S. It's not insignificant. They say that $929 billion worth of commercial real estate loans are resetting this year. So <clears throat> so I call a guy who knows more about real estate than anybody, and he said, oh, it's interesting. He said, I was just in New York talking with a, a, a banker who's very high up in, in these sorts of things because this guy operates at scale, and the banker said, oh, Interesting factoid, New York City now has 100 million square feet of empty office space. 100 million square feet? (laughs) And he said, to put that in context, there are only five cities that even have 100 million square feet, let alone 100 million that aren't occupied. So New York's on a league of its own. So what's happening is that these buildings, because it's a complicated thing. It turns out like you can't just say, well, let's turn them into apartments. So um, if you examine that, Right. Because, you know, in New York City, they have these 200 square foot um, floor plates, they're called. How do you turn those into an apartment? Because that's a block length. Right. So many of these buildings like Uh they have this floor plate. So how do you turn that? Like, what do you put in the center? Right. And then because they were set up as office buildings, like there's like one lavatory per per Mm -hmm. floor. So so then you have to he said this guy said basically for every 500 units you would try and convert, you have to drill something like three thousand holes Goodness, just right? to get just to get the plumbing through right and while you're drilling your three thousand holes you better hope you don't hit anything structural yeah. or some you know so it's it's a tricky proposition and and so even though they get the building sometimes uh they will give them at cost mm-hmm. it still doesn't make sense you can't you can't convert them and make any money at it so these are really stranded assets so punchline was he said these things are now selling for 30 cents on the dollar, which is the land cost. That's the well, buildings are going out at zero in so, many cases. 
um, Grant Williams and his commercial break and last last month's uh, publication. So in New York specifically came out of the spirit. There was a foreclosure at thirty four at West thirty fourth Street office building developed by Churchill Real Estate was originally developed for ninety million. And according to the real deal, the structure sold for only 16 and a half men in auction, which was won by Marathon Asset Management. That's in New York. And it's happening in Chicago and L.A. and Washington, D.C. It's all over the country. Yeah, and a lot of those are just fully stranded assets because nobody needs the office space because COVID broke that pretty comprehensively, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But what do you turn it into? Is it going to be retail or residential or some other form of commercial space? And every one of those, excuse me, is, a, is an expensive proposition. So in many cases, they, they literally, even though you can get them for cents on the dollar, you have to have a plan. Like, what are you going to do with them? And I have to confess that um, after uh, Letitia James got her hands on, um, you know, Donald Trump in New York, I've actually also had conversations with other people who are in real estate space who are like, they're walking. They're like, not yeah. a chance in the world. They want to, uh, you know, play in that space anymore because, you know, you can be politically targeted. Um, so that's not acceptable. Business is risky enough, but to be politically targeted because, you know, you liked the wrong tweet or somebody was offended at your use of pronouns, that's unacceptable. So it's really, it's really, yeah, tough, tough situation going on there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, first of all, I'm a political atheist. I'm not an atheist, but I'm a political atheist. I don't worship any one party. I just want what's best for the American people. But I was absolutely shocked by that that award that came through, you know, um, and knowing the business models and how that works when you're loaning with the banks. And then not only did the banks not even lose money from what I understand, they made substantial profits and continued to want to do business. So if Mm -hmm. it happens in that one precedent, you know, what's that saying? If, uh, you know, I stand by and do nothing when it happens to thee. And then all of a sudden it happens to me. I can't remember the quote, but something along that line, you know, that can be used in any direction now that that precedent is set. So I I agree, you know, that that should, those actions should hurt the business environment in New York City. Mm -hmm. Turns out um, George Soros-funded DAs are really expensive for the local community. You should maybe, you know, look into those more carefully. And I'm also a political atheist. I don't do left-right, but I do do up-down, right-from-wrong, you know, just in, in one sense. And that was a wrong. That was wrong. That that That's whole wrong. decision, wrong. But 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 fundamentally, it it violates. It crossed a boundary that should never be crossed. Politics and business keep them separate, right? Mm-hmm. It's like church and state, you know. Um, there and they crossed it, and they just did it gleefully and very excitedly. And there's people who think that was a really good thing because you know their team won, the other team lost. This is a really bad precedent, um, you know, and so. Precedent. And what's even scarier, you know, is I've heard several people make a discussion. Hey, well, that's okay. It'll get overturned on the appeal. But I had no clue until an article uh, I read earlier this week that said even so, if you if if he appeals this, he still mm-hmm. has to put up something like four hundred million dollars either in a bond or put up for real estate. So just the cost of appealing this, even if it's reduced, is financially devastating. So. Yeah, you know, he's got the resources to do it because what they said, that's 15% of his net worth or something like that. But still, I mean, it's just, it's just egregious. It's unethical, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so th- this is, um, 
you know, I think why uh, more and more people are getting concerned and starting to get that little vibe of waking up in the morning. But but I'm fielding more and more inquiries from people who really like, um, you know, the conversations I had two or three years ago were like, well, maybe I should buy a little gold or tell me about having a deep pantry or, you know, um, you know, thanks. You know, I got a nice garden, but how do I improve it? I'm getting different things now, Paul, where people are questioning, am I in the right country? Should I cash everything out? Like, like it's starting to get more significant, I think. So right. in that, in that front, I, I, I do think that, um, you know, the way I think about it, and I, I may be wrong about this, but it's kind of like when I was a boy, you know, there were a few times I remember I must've been, I don't know, five. When you think there's a monster under the bed, you know, and it's yes. paralyzing, right? It's paralyzing until you finally grew old enough to screw up the courage and peek your head under and lift mm. the thing up and there's nothing there and all that fear evaporates. I think what a lot of people are reacting to is that, is that they just don't know, mm. right? There's this uncertainty, but they can feel something's really off in this story. And that's why I think it's really important that people get the context, understand the stuff, go down as far into the details as you need to understand this, read your insurance contracts so you can remove that little fear. Like, am I covered or not? Right. Mm-hmm. Talk to your financial advisor, get a real plan, a real plan that says, hey, I think the government is misstating inflation by understating it by a significant amount. What's my plan? Because if you don't have that as a plan and you're you're flying wrong, you know, you're going to hit the trees, you know. So, so I think that's my, my advice to people is mm-hmm. just yeah turn towards this look under the bed do what you need to do to become certain about what's actually happening i know it's a lot of stuff going on right now that's why i do what i do why you do what you do why other people are in the business of making sense of all this um because there's a lot of nonsense going on right now there's a lot of nonsense well I, i remember back in the year 2000 i mean this is what my 26th year of of in the financial services industry before the patriot act we were going to go to paperless signatures you know or you know paperless one signature and you've got all the accounts open mm-hmm. and it was our responsibility to explain what the investment was the risks associated with well then you've got prospectuses that are mailed to people and don't get me wrong those are important because they they dictate how the investment worked but net, the disclosures went from a half a page to 50 pages. Well, inevitably people are so busy that they're not going to read them. So then they start stuffing all of these things in terms of agreement and, you know, and, and, and it, it's at the risk of the individual. And then you get these situations where, Oh, you get a new insurance policy upgraded and you've got, you know, uh, renewed and you've got 50 pages that are associated with it. Well, now you feel like you have the responsibility to go through each page by page and you really need to. So there was a period of time 26 years ago where people could see somewhat. And I had an individual that I was talking to recently says, you know, I feel like I'm walking through a dark room and there's people with baseball bats swinging and it's just a matter of time before I get hit in the mouth. So Mm -hmm. that's what we're trying to help people navigate, whether it's, you know, I've had conversations with individuals that are in districts that are, completely unfriendly to their way of life and how the freedoms that they believe that that are constitutional for us as Americans are looking to other states. So I've got people that I'm helping, you know, plan to relocate to to more friendly locations, lower cost of living locations. 
it's amazing what what we're able to help people do and it's it's really enjoyable to help have those conversations and and help them plan um because it is upending the way of life for a lot of people in a lot of states well it is and and this is i mean i live in one of those high cost states but there are plenty of them that fit the bill now and what's tragic to me is seeing that the elderly in my local community they're just getting taxed out of their homes mm-hmm. right and the community's not doing it maliciously. I mean, salt costs more to salt the roads in the winter, and, you know, a fire truck is a quarter million dollars now or whatever, you know. Like, like costs are really ruinously high, and, and that's just the reality of the situation. So that's why one of the scariest terms that, that, that I know about right now is stagflation. Kind of sounds fun. Stag party. You know, we're going to go out with the guys, have some fun. Uh-uh. Stagflation is this ruinous combination of low growth, right, and high inflation. And that crushes basically, well, I'll call it the 90% on down, right? You, you've, seen the, you've seen the stories, Paul, right? People are like, I make six figures, and here's my budget, and you look at it, and you could maybe trim a few things out of there, but that's not rich in a lot of cities at this point in time. I mean, no. you're barely scraping by once you take insurance, taxes, and you know property taxes out of that. It's expensive, you know? It is. It really is. And, and people are feeling it across the board, and that... So for the past 25 years, I've explained to to people when we do the planning, when they meet retirement. So the one thing that we have done is I've worked with people from 10, five to 10 years uh, into re- to, to retirement, prior to retirement, and then through retirement. I know what people are going to face. And don't get me wrong, the, the 2000 to 2003 collapse, that was a 50%, 47% market decline. Then 2008 was absolutely devastating. If you had a risk managed approach, it wasn't that bad. If you did not have a risk managed approach, if you stayed the course and didn't sell at the bottom, then then you've had a chance to recover somewhat, right? So you got to follow the rules of the strategy and understand the strengths of the weaknesses of the path that you're taking. But for those who let their emotions take over, inevitably they end up selling at the bottom or piling out at the top. Inflation has absolutely devastated them. And... Um, mm. You know, I mean, I had a consultation with somebody here recently that that we met with in 2015, and I told him, I said, "Look, you're going to run out of money if you don't make if, if you don't work another five or six years because of inflation, somewhere between year seven to ten. Now, I always try to make it look a little bit worse than what it'll be. They came in in year ten, and and I'm like, you have no easy options, right? You know, they had gone ahead and retired, didn't think that inflation was going to be a big deal. It's absolutely wiped them out. The good thing is they've got a lot of assets in a home, but now they're in a situation where they need to downsize and reinvest those funds somewhere else. So, um, you know, had they been levered to the hilt, it would have been a much harder decision. So, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of these things a, a good advisor can help prepare for. We don't know the future but we can help you develop a plan and, and identify those risks that you're going to face, especially with those of us who've got some experience because we've seen what people before you have gone through. And, you know, and, and inflation is just, it's, a, it's so evil from my term, especially once you get into retirement, because there's no conservative way, Chris, to protect yourself against inflation. I mean, there's just no conservative way. You have to carry a lot more risk. Um, because of yields being held down artificially for so long and then the government not being honest about the real rate of inflation. And, you know, that's self-serving on their part because guess what? If they can 
change the numbers so the CPI stays down, then that's less Social Security pay raises. That's less pension pay raises. That's less, you know, anything that's tied to that rate. I mean, and even Wall Street gets away with uh, not having to raise salaries as much because those numbers are stated below. So it's self-serving on their part. And, um, um, you know, at the expense of the American people, it's a hidden tax that comes along so slowly that people don't realize it. Indeed. I'm going to find this again because we talked about this last time um, because it's just so important. Nope, not that. See if I kept this presentation open. Um, hmm. Well, uh, take me a minute to find it. Um, That's okay. While you're looking at that, I'll I'll share this. Oh, oh yeah, please do. Give me a second. Uh, I'll, I'll figure this out. So the one thing that's good, Chris, if we do end up in a stagflationary or a higher inflationary environment, because of the just leadership and the momentum and the chasing and the the hurting of all assets into the U.S. equity markets, you know, S&P 500, NASDAQ, uh, since 2008, it's, it's still the only major asset class 16 years later that's above the values that it had January 1st of 2008. I'm talking commodities, emerging markets, and developed markets. Yep. So there are some some very good opportunities because you got to think about these companies that have not been getting all this capital. They've had to be, they've had to, to trim back the excess within the company. They've had to make sure their manufacturing process are good. They're lean, they're mean, they're profitable. Their debt levels are reasonable. So at some point there's going to be a rebalancing. So for those individuals who recognize the damage of inflation, have a strategy that can, can help them to, adapt their asset allocation, you know, it may be three years before they take off, but you get a little bit of exposure now so that it's on your radar and you average in over a period of time and then you increase the allocation to those other assets, you can get through this. You're going to have to carry more risk than you want to carry, but you Mm -hmm. can get through a higher inflationary environment or a stagflationary environment because just because the U.S. indexes uh, may struggle you know, and go flat. I wouldn't be surprised outside of hyperinflation that seven years from now, the U.S. equity markets are the same value today as that are lower than where they are right now. But other asset classes will play catch up. So, you know, there there is hope for those that are willing to look, but your traditional modern portfolio theory and what has worked well for the past 10 years may not necessarily be what works as well for the next 10 years. And you gotta you gotta have a portfolio to where you can pass that baton off to a fresh runner so that it can keep you ahead of that inflationary holocaust and your loss of purchasing power. Well, I want to talk about that because you know we just had a bad inflation reading at the time of this recording. It was higher mm-hmm. than expected. It was in the producer prices, and so they're like, "Oops, you know." Um, in fact, it, it was so high that 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 they're starting to whisper maybe the Fed won't cut or maybe even has one more hike in it or something like that right um we are going to have more inflation and i know that and i'm confidently i might be wrong but i'm confident about this because of this right we know we've put presented this before this is from the congressional budget office this is on cnbc so it's probably as whitewashed as it can get at this point um (laughs) we're going to be facing at least two trillion dollars a year per year for the next 10 years this is just deficit spending, and this is outside of any additional costs like, oh, there's a war we have to pay for, or oh, there was a recession, and we want to, it's a stimulus year for because it's an election cycle. 
So I know that the Fed really desperately wants to cut rates and do all of that because feeding into these deficits is that spiral where the more the government borrows, the higher its interest costs. And those have finally hit the airwaves, Paul. We have people finally talking about that in public going, oh, Wall Street Journal, like, yeah, these interest payments seem high. Like, really? A trillion dollars a year seems high to you, you know? Um, just and, and those are going to just go higher and higher, right? So, so because of that deficit spending, though, we're going to have more inflation. It's just how it works. Absolutely. Because the government borrows the money into existence and spends it out there, but it doesn't produce anything for it, right? So that's just more money chasing the same amount of goods and services. The second thing about that, too, is that all these people, you know, Biden, Team Biden, and again, not political, but I just, I hate inaccuracy whenever it shows its head. Like, oh, this is a strong economy. Look how strong it's doing. You know, we just had this great GDP print. I'm like, but that's with the government deficit spending 6% of GDP, right? You can't say, oh, look at this great 3% growth, and you're responsible for 200% of that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, it's just... It's just, ugh. and so you had a chart that showed um, that, that, by the way, this isn't fooling anybody when you look at the difference between how the so-called big seven are doing in the stock market versus the other 493 in the S&P. It's a tale of two worlds. I mean, oh, good. Take, walk us through this chart because this is really, so this so tells that, the tale, the whole thing. You know, and, and this is the amazing part, Chris, you know. I mean, I've been doing this for 26 years and I'm looking at the markets all the time, but you know, sometimes you just miss the magnitude unless you go back and look. So Deutsche Bank's Jim Reed published a thematic report on the Magnificent Seven and Zero Zero Hedge did a good summary. If anybody wants to go look at it, it's titled The Most Concentrated Market in History, a Macro Guide to the Magnificent Seven and 13 Charts. I don't share all 13 charts here. But this is uh, total returns in U.S. dollars since March of 2015 indexed to 100. So, of course, at the top, you've got the Magnificent 7 index. So 1,800 uh, versus 100. So 18 times, 180 times over what everything else has done. Now, you've got the S&P 500, that pink line follows down here. Look at the difference, Chris. I mean, that's insane. And then you've got the Nasdaq. I'm just yeah, that's, that's maybe a doubling. That's a that's a doubling, right? Yeah. Oh, oh well, let's see what that's approximately 400. Started at 100, went to 200 for the black. I'm looking at the pink line for the S&P 500. The Nasdaq seems to have gone up to maybe 4. Yeah, so right? maybe a doubling and then look at the difference in the magnificent 7 versus everything else. So you, you know, I mean artificial intelligence, you know, whatever indexing has a lot to do with that mike green talks about like that because you've just got you know price insensitive buyers that's just going to be buying the index through their 401k contributions so this is just continuing to feed on itself but that's been the only game in town only game in town i mean don't get me wrong the s p 500 and the nasdaq have gone up but the magnificent seven have contributed dramatically to those returns so this is not everyone participating across the board uh, and that's one of the things that's so concerning about the market where we are right now is the blood work, it work the undercurrent, the, the number of stocks participating. You know, imagine we're going to battle and you've got the generals and the infantry on the on the battlefield, on the front lines, and, and the generals are guiding the infantrymen and they're they're battling. Well, we've got a situation right now where the infantrymen have left the battlefield and the only thing that's there is the generals. 
So at some point, the generals are going to recognize they're standing there alone and turn the other way, or they're going to own everything in the world. Mm -hmm. So next we go into the top 10% of stocks by size versus the entire U.S. stock market. So what's interesting about this is we cycle. <clears throat> I mean, um, uh, you know, the, the fourth turning, there's plenty of evidence when you look at through history that we go through these cycles and these irrational periods. So we have tied at this point uh, the most uh, concentrated market in history going back to the Great Depression era here on the left. So that chart starts in 1926, I believe it is. Mm -hmm. And then you can see we kind of drop through. Now in the 2000 bubble peak, uh, when the technology bubble burst at the uh, uh, in the year 2000, that was the second most concentrated market in history, and we have since surpassed that. So, wow. Um, you know, that, that just tells you, this is, this is not a period of time where things are underpriced. I mean, the market may be, may be higher, maybe fiscal stimulus and they run us into the, uh, they rob from our future so much to try to keep the markets up here in the short run that they stay irrational for a lot longer and nobody knows when it's going to peak. I, my educated guess was we, we peak out probably May, June or this, of, of this midsummer, May to July, unless the credit event, you know, we have a credit event in April with the regional bank stress. But to follow along this theme, so this goes back throughout history, just kind of look at where we've been in the past. So in the 1967-68, um, in 1972, you had the Nifty 50. So it's the Magnificent Seven now, but all the investors were chasing the Nifty 50 back then. So the top five stocks at that time represented about 25% of the market cap in the S&P 500 was IBM, AT&T, Exxon, Eastman, Kodak, and GM. Okay. Now you jump forward to where we are today, you know, dot-com dot com bubble peak, you know, that was minimal, but that was the highest level we'd seen since 81. And we're back to those major levels going back to February of 24. Now to follow that theme a little bit, just to kind of show where the markets were back then, this is 1965 through 1981. Now, a couple of things that I've highlighted here, the red dotted line, which is highlighted with this red arrow, is the S&P 500 price to earnings ratio equivalent to 20, which we would consider an overvalued market throughout history. The blue mm -hmm. dotted line is 15, just to represent an overvalued market. So we show here, you know, take, pick any period from 1965 out to about 1979, 1980. The market went flat for that, you know, 11 to 15 year period of time. And uh, you cycle back to the year 2000, you know, same charts. Market was more expensive in the year 2000. It's more expensive today than it was in the year 2000. Uh, 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 during that period of time are equivalent to, and then you went 13 years sideways on the S&P 500. So th this is not a period of time where, you know, we we should be just cheering and, and low risk and setting our investments on the shelf and ignoring them. You know, there is a time to do that. Uh, but that right now is not the time. You've got to be diligent. We don't know when this ends, right? Typically, the market doesn't peak until after the first um Fed cut into an easing cycle. Now that didn't happen in 1984. I think there's been eight or nine. There's been nine easing cycles after uh, interest rate increases since 61 or so to, to fight off inflation in 1984. 
was the only easing cycle, according to the Mad King's report, that, that we didn't have a recession on the other side of. But that was a lot different. We had come out of the 70s period. The market was undervalued. Baby boomers, there was a, a lot different than where we are right now, and our debt levels were nowhere near what they are as, as a percentage of GDP um, now. So uh, dangerous times. Well, they say that, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, the exits are really crowded when, when you get into these overbought, over, you know, overpriced right. conditions. But with everybody crowded into just seven stocks, because when, when you looked at the rest of them, you know, stripping those seven out, Earnings are down actually double digits across mm -hmm. all other 493. I'm a little suspicious about how these seven companies are managing to knock the cover off the ball. <laughs> um, I, I'm a little suspicious of that because um, I personally hate Facebook and never use it. Um, this is not a recommendation for or against it, but it, it just doesn't feel current anymore in a lot of ways. But somehow it's managing to, you know, continue to uh, grow its its uh, its revenues out um, and uh and it's earnings. So a little suspicious about all that, but it just feels weird that these seven companies have somehow unlocked the, the mystery of outsized returns and the other 493 companies and doing things important like healthcare, energy, construction, you know, important things. Somehow collectively they haven't worked it out, you know? So it just, it's very much not just a tale of two markets, but it's almost like we have to believe that there's a tale of two economies that are mm -hmm. fundamentally operating in different landscapes. And I don't, it's odd to me. Um, so I don't, I don't quite get it, uh, it at this point in time, but certainly we can tell that there's, you know, when you look at the, to me, one of the things I look for, and again, these individual issues are neither recommendation for or against, but for me, these are signposts. When I see what I consider to be bubble territory, because I'm old enough, I've lived through multiple bubbles and that didn't used to be the case. I'm pretty sure after people got burned by tulips in Holland in, in the 1600s, they went, they swore off bubbles for about four generations, right? The, the stories were painful enough that, you know, people remembered that. We had a bubble in, you know, 2007. We had one in 2000, right? So when we look at things like um, NVIDIA or SMCI, right, which is um, th these companies, right, they're just absolutely parabolic, well, SMCI started to correct pretty hard, you know, not, no surprise. Right. Um, but, but absolutely parabolic. And, uh, we're looking now at things that I never thought I'd see again, where you see companies sporting things like price to sales that are in double digits. Right. You know? And, and so I, on, on, for my subscribers, I, I had a, um, a piece I read from Scott McNeely, who was then uh, CEO of Sun Microsystems back when they were bubblicious back in, in the, in the internet craze. Right. So going way back. And he said, do you realize when you're paying 10 times sales for my company, you're basically saying that you're going to get your money back if for 10 years I take 100% of sales and I feed it back to shareholders and dividends. Yeah. That's what it would take. He said, but I need to remind you, I have 39,000 employees, so I got some expenses. And, you know, he ticks off all the reasons why paying 10 times sales is it's just mathematically impossible mm -hmm. that that's ever going to pencil out. And yet we can find that same condition today, right? We can. Um, we sure can. And that's sure one can. Of and oh, it's hard. I didn't mean to interrupt your thought process. No, no. So no, I'm. I'm yeah, I'm done. <laughs> you, you take Bezos, which is is selling a large stake in in Amazon right now. You've got insiders that are taking advantage of this euphoric stock market to to cash in some of their shares. 
And mm-hmm. yeah, there's some of that is programmed, but when it happens in as large a numbers as what's taking place right now, that is an indication that, that even the leaders of these companies recognize that there's euphoria. And one of the things that I'm noticing and working with, with even very patient investors is NVIDIA's eating the lunch of a lot of individuals. So I always have this, this conversation. Now, not an investment recommendation, but one of the uh, sectors that we own has exposure, uh, that our clients own has exposure to NVIDIA and the semiconductors. So I don't point that out to them until we have the conversation. It's like, hey, you know, should we chase NVIDIA at the uh, uh tomorrow or the day after in case they pull back on earnings. And I'm like, no, not, you know, it's pure speculation at this point, right? I mean, just absolute pure speculation, whether you want to chase this. I said, so if this is money that you want to throw, you know, go to Vegas and throw red or black on Russian roulette, go right ahead. But I think you got a better odds of winning there than you do right now, because let's say it works in the short run. When you're on a parabolic move like this, historically, these things have broken. And I know, you know, I've listened to several arguments for and they're reasonable with you know artificial intelligence that comes through and how this can increase profitability but if it increases probability that much then how many layoffs are going to take place to be able to buy their goods right so you you know at some point there's a a diminishing returns i would much rather take my hard-earned money and invest in the companies that are that are attractive in valuations that are backbones and don't get me wrong these are Magnificent Seven are obviously backbones of where we are, but producing the goods that we use, the foods that we eat, the the transportation that we get through, there are so many other attractive companies out there. I would rather go there because at some point when this bubble bursts, people are going to wake up and they're going to go want to buy back all of the things that they sold to go chase these investments just like they did back in 1999 where Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway capitalized on that and they went up when the market went down. There are investors that are long-term focused and operating under a plan that can benefit from this, benefit themselves and their families. Well, I'll tell you, um, I can't totally disagree with the idea that, listen, you know, uh, as I've said waggishly, your relationship goal in life would be to find somebody who loves you as much as the Federal Reserve loves the stock market, <laughs> right? You know, <laughs> because right. they're just so hyper-focused on it. It starts to stumble a little like it did in October of 23, and they just pour gasoline onto it because they need it to go up and to the right. And so they're, they're very protective of that. At the same time, they end up stoking a lot of inflation. So I think this is an awkward year because we're recording this in early 2024 here. It's February. And this is an election year. So obviously they're going to want to be stimulative. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, inflation is, is, there, is starting to become a really hot potato politically. And so mm-hmm. it's going to be hard for the Fed. You know, if, if the stock market stumbles again, their instinct is going to be, what do we do to rescue it? You know, um, and at the same time, that could politically backfire this political year. Because I've uh, more and more people, I don't know about you, but I'm running into them are like really shocked by this inflation thing. Right. Oh, yeah. Whether it's the rent, whether it's their auto insurance. You know, um, I heard from a mutual friend of ours that in Georgia, a 16 year old, no accidents, but a new driver, five hundred dollars a month. Mm. That's what they're being quoted across multiple plants. (laughs) That's not that 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 doesn't surprise me, actually. I mean, my car Mm -hmm. insurance, we've still got. Well, we've got one child that's still on the car insurance will that's at Georgia Tech, and our our car insurance is up thirty percent or so here recently. No accidents, no no mm-hmm. 
uh, I had a ticket, but it didn't make it to my record. So, um, so that shouldn't have been there, but, um, but yeah, $500 yeah. a month. That's insane. A month. Yeah. Just, huh. yeah, that's just what it is. Right. Um, yeah. which is a crazy number. Cause if you sort of multiply that out and you think, well, that's $6,000 a year. And let's say the average out of pocket for a decent accident is 60 grand. Mm-hmm. That's saying that every 10, 16 year olds is going to, is going to have an, uh, a $60,000 accident. And it's just not, mm-hmm. that's not, it's, that's no, that's no. not it. You know, it's, no. it's a much, much smaller number. So we don't know what's happening there, but it doesn't feel right. All this and that. So I just think that's going to be very hard for the federal reserve to step in openly mm-hmm. and dump a lot more money into the markets and create more inflation. What they can do surreptitiously, I don't know. You know, more and more people, Paul, are starting to ask me questions, which I've been on this thing for a long time, which is when you really watch the markets closely, you're like, that's some bizarre behavior um, right there. Like, uh, like, like here, this is, this is just from today. This is right now, right? It's uh, closing in at 4 o'clock, so the market is, has just closed. And this is what me and my trader friends used to call the 3.30. Well, I won't say because we, we had a, a, a indecent term for it, but um, <laughs> this is... This, this this little this this projection that happens and it happens at three thirty very reliably right and you know the market was sort of wobbling down and then just it turns on a dime scalded ape up it, off it goes and so that's one ten twenty twenty five that's almost thirty points on the S and P and it just did that and for what reason what would the reason be investors you know thought something nah. This is just how the market goes, and it and it does this all the time now, and and it's kind of weird. Um, so so, uh, given that, I'm a little, I you know, I'm an audit the Fed kind of guy. Like, listen, it's a public institution. It's been granted with one of the most extraordinary powers ever granted to any government-sponsored enterprise, right? Mm-hmm. And remember, for most people listening, you know this. I know you know this. The Federal Reserve is not a federal agency. It's a private cartel. It's been granted this extraordinary power, and it's been resisting the idea of being audited for decades, right? And I mean audited, like I want to see transaction-level auditing. That's what an audit is. Somebody comes in, no limits, let me just poke around and find out where things went, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you nope, they're like, here, you can audit this balance sheet we've prepared. And you're like, yep, it's a balance sheet. <laughs> That's no good, Right. No, so so I would be very curious to see what what's actually going on because we would read about these things after the fact, like oh yeah, it was an emergency, so the Fed had to open a two hundred and fifty billion dollar swap line with foreign central banks. Like, what? Yeah, you know that's my that was my money. What what they what you know under what terms and you know and so it's just it's very mysterious. So I, I'm hoping that those that more and more people have started to realize the devil's in the details. And we really, we deserve details here. We need to know what's happening. When I see these things happen at 3.30 over and over and over again, I don't see a free and fair market. I see no. something different. Consistently. And then all, uh, you know, all of the, the judgments against the, the uh, banking, in, uh, banking or- organizations that have had settlements against gold price manipulation. You know, and you know if, if you're trying to manipulate the... Uh, CPI index, you sure don't want gold prices to go higher because that's reflective of higher inflation than what your stating's taking place. So, mm-hmm. and I don't understand the thought process behind why the Federal Reserve should not be audited. I mean, y- you've got the ability to print massive amounts of money and inject it into the economy pretty much wherever you want. The American people should be able to see where that goes, and we should be able to have. Uh, 
you know, clear and open books as to where that's going because there's all kinds of fraud that can happen behind closed doors, right? You bring it into the light of the public, that's a check and balance in and of itself to protect against. So when you look at what happens if you're a big institution or if, like in, in your case, you know, you can't give investment recommendations. I can't give those without full disclosures of everything that's taken place because you could try to front run your own positions or you could try to offload your positions onto someone else. So the government forces the individuals to disclose everything that they do, conflicts of interest. And I get it. That's a check and balance. That's a good thing to have. Why don't we have the ability to look into the Federal Reserve and see what's taking place there? Because we need those checks and balances. With as much deceit as taking place with the administration and politicians, you know, ask anybody. I think everybody believes that most politicians lie all the time. I mean, it's, it's clear as day. Why are we not, you know, um, auditing and bringing into the light of the public what's taking place in the Federal Reserve? That just doesn't make sense to me either. It, it's just such a basic thing. You're raising so many good points there. To me, it's a basic thing, which is if people can lie or cheat or game a system for their benefit, mm -hmm. they do it. Not that's an exception. We have to be careful. They do it. So I would like to see the same care brought to analyzing what that incredible power of being able to print trillions out of thin air. Of course, that could be abused. And of course, it will be abused. I would like to see, you know, I would take a pit boss from Vegas and have them look at that. You know why they have all those cameras and they oh, watch man. carefully? You know, because some people will figure out. And I don't even think this is cheating. I think if you're smart enough to count cards, good for you, right? You but they call it, it cheating. Yeah. You should be able to. You're playing the game according to the rules as they stand, right? And some people are smart enough to figure out how to tilt that slightly in their favor. And they say, no, that's unacceptable, right? So, mm -hmm. so those we should have a pit boss watching as carefully the trillions of dollars that are getting printed out of thin air as we do $10 hands of blackjack in <laughs> Vegas. One man's opinion. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you ever had a pit boss come look over your shoulder, Chris? Yep. <laughs> yep, it's nerve-wracking, you know? <laughs> but not because I was, probably because I was playing so badly that they were like, this is this has got to be a, this has got to be a ruse, you know? <laughs> I was in Tahoe one time playing blackjack, and I noticed that the dealer had a tick after I'd been playing for about an hour or so. Uh, he would look at his cards, and, and I don't know. I just saw something that gave me an indication that, that you know, he's like, oh, okay, you know, I've got a good hand or not. So I, I started winning a, a pretty good bet, and, and they came and started – because my, my betting changed, right? So they pit boss came and looked over my shoulder, and I was like, this is uncomfortable. I can't pay attention. I'm out of here. <laughs> so I couldn't imagine somebody <laughs> counting cards. That, that the, But if they can count cards, you know, that that's not – the casinos should add more decks to the stack like they have. If they can't add enough, then let that person win. That's just part of doing business. Mm-hmm. Yep, totally agree. Totally agree. So um, with that, anybody who wants to uh, take advantage of Paula's incredible service and may, maybe um, go the distance and, and get a, a free financial evaluation and plan, mm -hmm. go to peakfinancialinvesting.com com and fill out a very simple form and somebody will be in touch with you shortly so again paul so so thankful to be working with you and the, and the feedback i've been getting from people has been nothing short of stellar uh so it's it's a really good thing here thank you chris uh it's our honor um uh, it's an incredible honor and the people that i'm meeting are just amazing so uh we enjoy it 
look forward to meeting uh, anyone who'd like a free consultation. Excellent. Until next time. Thanks, everyone. This has been Finance University with Chris Martinson and Paul Kiker. Paul, see you next time. See you, Chris. Have a great day. Hello, Chris Martinson. I'm the CEO of Peak Prosperity and also Peak Financial Investing. And after watching that, you're probably wondering, well, what do I do with my money? Look, you both deserve and need somebody who can talk to you about what's really going on in this world, understand the situation as it is, not be steering you towards certain things that don't make sense for you or just keep you in a game that's already ended. Look, if you want to talk to somebody about the petrodollar declining or what is happening with gold or which sectors are actually the best ones to be in, given what the Federal Reserve is up to or the federal government, you deserve to talk to somebody who can answer those and has a few gray hairs and has been there through some of the economic cycles because, hey, we're in another economic cycle, so it's good to have that experience. Fortunately, at Peak Financial Investing, what we do is we go out and we scour and we look for the very best firms out there who satisfy one thing above all else. They've got great experience coupled to great customer service. So if you want to come by peakfinancialinvesting.com, there's a very simple form you can fill out. Just a few fields. You hit send. What happens is an email gets triggered out. It goes to uh, an endorsed firm of ours. You will get an email back. You can then set up a phone call for a 30 to 45 minute free, no obligation, no pressure call to find out if this firm is a good fit for you and to find out if you're a good fit for the firm. It has to go both ways. And if all that matches up, this will be one of the best things that could happen to you this year. So please come by peakfinancialinvesting.com. Very simple process. We would love to help you if we can. Thanks very much.